Hello, this is William Pink, and this is Christianity Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, January 23rd, 2021. And here we are with Truthids once again to present part 24 of his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. In the last few presentations in this series, we have been discussing particular passages in the New Testament where certain terms are mistranslated or misunderstood, which also adversely affect the interpretation of the scriptures throughout the entire New Testament. While, of course, we cannot or even should not discuss every error of interpretation, we have endeavored to address the passages which would change one's view of scripture and potentially one's entire worldview once they are translated properly and understood within the context of the entire scripture. With these interpretations, which we uphold to be correct, all of these seeming conflicts and inconsistencies within the scripture vanish. God is no longer a hypocrite, which the denominational churches make him out to be in many ways, but with this we can know that God is true. Now we will continue with proof 44, and we are in the midst of the Gospel of Luke as we had left off with the parable of the unrighteous steward in Luke chapter 16. So hello, Truthvids, and thank you for being here once again. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. So um, just got a little bit more of Luke and then we can get on to Acts. And it's very clear that Yahshua, Jesus Christ, is uh, continuously comparing two different races, an evil race and then his own race, comparing and contrasting them. And uh, when we get to Acts, it will get even more interesting because he's probably the most mistranslated ever Acts and the epistles of Paul where he's trying to go to Europe and spread Christianity, that we are the Israelites, and he's constantly being chased by these same Jews that were persecuting Christ. So, yeah. So, right, Bill, we can uh, go ahead and finish up Luke. Well, well right. I, I, was looking through, um, I was looking through my John, Gospel of John commentary this morning for another reason. And, and I was looking at Ezekiel chapter 34 and where Yahweh God says, I will seek my sheep. And, and of course, Christ is the shepherd who's seeking the sheep and he's seeking the sheep through his apostles and the apostles go to Europe. Now, there are early Catholic tales and they're tales. They're not true. They're not that there's no contemporary evidence at all from the first century, that the apostles went anywhere but Mesopotamia and, and Syria and, and Europe, none whatsoever. So we find in the scriptures, we find Peter is in Babylon at a point very late when he writes his first epistles. Why was Peter in Babylon? Because he was, the, he was an apostle to the circumcised, and there were still large numbers of the remnant captivity of Judah in Mesopotamia, and Babylon was still a notable city in Mesopotamia, so that's why Peter was in Babylon. Earlier, Peter and John and James and the other apostles, even though they're not all named, 
are in Jerusalem and in Antioch. And they are in those places right up until 60-something AD. There's no real evidence except for tales that the Roman Catholic writers had began to um, develop in, in early medieval times. There's no real evidence of apostles in India or Egypt or Africa or any of those other places except Syria, Mesopotamia, and Europe. As the Roman church began to develop, that we see these, that these um, myths appear of apostles in diverse places, and even those myths actually conflict with one another in, in many areas. So they're, they should be dismissed, unless we have contemporary evidence, those myths should be dismissed with a grain of salt. And I just had to get that off my chest when you were talking about the apostles going to Europe. So, so Thomas didn't go to India then? <laughs> no, there's absolutely no proof of that whatsoever. Now, it's clear that elements of the gospel did reach India. <clears throat> that's clear. But that's not necessarily Thomas that brought them there. And the Krishna story is actually a third or fourth century corruption of the gospel that was devised later. So whatever gospel did reach India was perverted in the Krishna story. And I'm fairly confident that that's a fact. In the parable of the unrighteous steward in Luke chapter 16, where we left off, we saw that Yahshua Christ was actually contrasting men of different races. And he used the term for race, which is Ganea, in order to make that comparison. Those two races were described in an allegory as the sons of light and the sons of this age or world. The wicked steward was praised by his master for his wickedness because he acted as one may expect of a wicked steward of one of the sons of this age. The parable is a lesson in human nature, that one's nat nature and actions are, and, and the resulting actions are inherent and cannot be changed for the better if one is a devil or a bastard in the first place. But now, in Luke chapter 17, we shall see that the Greeks viewed race even more narrowly than we are accustomed to perceive race today. So we shall begin by reading from Luke chapter 17, and this is from the Christogenian New Testament, because I believe that the translation is much more clear and understandable. And it came to pass while traveling to Jerusalem, that he, a reference to Christ, had passed through the center of Samaria and Galilee. And upon his coming into a certain town, they encountered ten leprous men who had stood afar off. And they raised their voices, saying, Yahshua, Master, have mercy on us. And seeing them, he said to them, Going, Show yourselves to the priests. And, and the implication of that is that he had already had mercy on them. 
So we read, and it happened that with their going off, they were cleansed. Then one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned with a great voice, extolling God, or Yahweh, and fell upon his face by his feet, thanking him. And he was a Samaritan. And replying, Yahshua said, Were not ten cleansed? Then where are the nine? Are there none found returning to give honor to Yahweh, except he who is of another race? And he said to him, Arising, go, your faith has preserved you. So were the other nine Edomites, do you think, or are we not sure? No, the other nine were almost certainly Israelites, and, and that's why Christ is making that, that statement that only someone of another race had preserved you. So the other nine would, of course, be of the same race as Christ and his disciples who were standing with him, who were traveling with him. So the other nine was certainly Israelites. And this one man was a Samaritan. Now, <clears throat> the word alogenes appears in verse 17 here. And alogenes, right? It, it's alos means another or different or other in Greek, right? And genes is, it is from genea and it means race. So alogenes is another race or a different race. And that's how it's defined by Liddell and Scott. It's defined as of another race or a stranger. And, and that is how the King James Version translates it here as stranger. And this word only appears here in the New Testament. But the translation of the King James Version is unfortunate because, once again, it fails to distinguish this term from other Greek words, which are also translated as stranger, but do not have any um, connotation concerning race, right? A xenos is just someone who is a guest who is not one of your own, and a Zenos is a guest in your town or community or house, right? So, a Zenos, that word does not imply the person is of another race. It's just an outsider from your own house. It could be somebody from across town or from your own community. It could be someone from a neighboring community would still be a Zenos in, in that respect if he was in your house or your community. So alogenes, as compared to those other Greek words translated as stranger, alogenes specifically means someone of another race. At the time, at the time of Christ, the ancient Samaritans were comprised in part from remnants of Israelites whose ancestors had escaped Assyrian captivity. And, and that's how the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 claimed to be a daughter of Jacob because, and, and it's evident in the historical books of Scripture, there were some Israelites who were in Samaria who were not taken captive. The Assyrians weren't able to round up every single Israelite, even though they did either kill or round up 
most of them and take them into captivity. They couldn't get them all. There were those who escaped with the sword, and, and there were those who, who were left in the land, scattered in the land. But there were also apparently at least some Canaanites who had been slaves to Israel and who remained in the land after the deportations of Israel. However, the Assyrians brought captives from other nations which they conquered and, and which rebelled against them. They brought captives from those other nations from in and around Mesopotamia to populate the land of Israel as it was mostly vacant after the conquest and deportations of Israel. So, ostensibly, a Samaritan could be an Israelite, as distinguished from an Israelite of Judea, or a Samaritan could be an Adamic individual from one of the other white Adamic Genesis 10 nations, as distinguished from a descendant of Arphaxad, or the Hebrews, or the Israelites, right? So, a Persian to an Israelite even though they were all from the, the Shem of Genesis chapter 10, a Persian would still be an Alogenase or someone of another race. Because the Greeks saw race more narrowly than we do. <clears throat> and here, universalists, those who assert that the body of Christ may be multiracial, they abuse the appearance of this word alogenes and insist that it refers to someone who is not a Jew <clears throat> and that therefore Jesus came for all the races and that is a lie. While the word certainly may be used to signify someone of another race after the race of Adam and therefore someone who is not white, that interpretation here is not compulsory and neither is it correct? It is certainly not correct here. The word may also merely signify that the man is not a Judean or that he is not an Israelite at all. At the time of Christ, one Samaritan in a group of nine Judeans would be distinguished by the custom of his dress. So he very may very well may have been a white man who was distinguished by the custom of his dress, and they would know that he was not a Judean. So he was someone of another race. However, within the historical context of ancient Samaria, it is certain that he was of the race of Adam. That being of another race doesn't make you not white or, or not of the stock of, of the sons of Noah. Today, we are accustomed to the idea that there are multiple nations created from one race. So we look at the word race differently and more generally than the ancient Greeks or Hebrews. The Greek view of race was much narrower than our own. From their perspective, a race could specify a tribe or family within a nation. And that's why Genos has the meaning that it that it does in, in the lexicons that it could mean a race a stock or a family 
From the Greek perspective, a race could specify a tribe or family within a nation, even though today we would perceive all the members of that nation to have been of the same general race, and, and so would the Greeks. It depends on the context of how the word is used. And, and inside of the Peloponnesus, for instance, we were talking about Xenophon and, and the Peloponnesian Wars before we began this recording this morning. And, and you had the race of the Heraclidae or the Heraclidae, the, the descendants of Heracles. And, and that's one race. That doesn't mean that they are a different general race than their neighbors, but the race of Heracles would be one race, one line of descendants within the nation. So they would use the word Genea to describe the entire people who were all of the same origin in the nation or one family within that people. That's how they use the term. So just because it says Alogenes doesn't mean that this one man was a Negro or a Chinaman or anything like that. That doesn't, or a non-white as we see the word race today. But more importantly, with Luke's use of this word here in this place, this, that this very particular word, we may also perceive that where he had elsewhere used the word ethnos, which most literally is a nation, but which is more frequently translated as Gentile in the King James Version, he cannot mean to describe people of other races. Or perhaps we might expect him to have used this word alogenes instead. The gospel was never sent out to the other races, to the Alogenes, it was sent out to nations, the, the ethne in the plural, or Alogene in the plural. Most of the references by Luke and Paul to the Gentiles, or properly nations, are references to the dispersed nations of Israel. If Luke distinguished this one man as an Alogenes, why did he never distinguish other recipients of the gospel of Christ with the same word? Why did he only use the word here? So this leads us to discuss Luke 18.32, where Christ is speaking of himself. And we read in the King James Version, For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on, and they shall scourge him and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. And, and here, it, it's this meaning of the term Gentiles, and how we should look at that, because we have to see who Christ was delivered to, and who scourged him and mocked him, and spat on him and put him to death in order to understand what Christ meant by that term Gentiles or, or the plural form of ethnos. I don't know if you have any comments. 
Um, the verse you just read, is that often abused then to imagine that there was just a lonely nigger amongst everyone and Christ was pointing out that he was the one who thanked Christ and they try and make it like it was all multicultural as in different uh, colors of races. Well, well, right. Just and, and they don't really describe, I've never seen described what race this man may have been, but simply because that word means another race, they take advantage of that to try to squeeze all races into the grace of God. But when that is completely out of the context, the historical context of Samaria and, and the context of what is actually happening in this passage, it, it's outside of the context. Yeah, if you Google um, the, the parable Good Samaritan, it will always be a nigger. Now, if you just can't Google images, it always is. Right, and that's also ridiculous. That That is also far outside of the context of, of the ancient world. But now they're even trying to make Christ himself out to be a nigger or, or brown or an Arab. And that's simply not true. He wasn't an Arab at all. That the first images of Christ and the apostles date to perhaps the second century or, or third century. And paintings of them in the catacombs of Rome, they were all white. Now, now there were paintings found it, it, at Pompeii and other places in Italy of brown Egyptian people, of brown-looking Arab people. But whenever Christ and the apostles are painted, they were always all white men. Now, there were traders and, and slaves in Italy that were brown, that had come from Egypt or, or, or Arabia and, and defeated in battle or, or sold into slavery in Italy or doing their, their, their master's deeds or, or business in Italy. So there were some brown people in Italy, but it was a it was a very small minority at the time of Christ. But all of the paintings, early Roman paintings and depictions of of the apostles and of Christ, they were clearly white, and the majority of Romans and the majority of Judeans were clearly white that the majority of, of people in the entire Roman world were clearly white. Those brown people from Arabia and Egypt at that time, because the Arabs, well, the word Arab means mixed, they were a very small minority in the Roman world. So we see some paintings of some people at Pompeii, for example, that, that were brown, but they were a minority. And most of those paintings of brown people, mixed people like that, came from Egypt. Roman Egypt, Greek Egypt, I should say. Macedonian Egypt. Here in verse 32 of Luke chapter 18, there is a phrase, tois ethnesin, which is the dated plural and is literally to the nations. Although in this context, it may be rendered to the heathens where the King James has to the Gentiles, that Christ would be delivered unto the Gentiles. The word ethnos is usually and properly a nation. Yet in certain contexts, it may be translated as people 
And the use of this term in the plural is important when one wants to understand the true meaning of passages such as that found in Acts 13.46 and Acts 18.6, where Paul used the word ethnos in the plural in a local scope. Speaking of peoples of different nations gathered in one place, and we're going to discuss that. And this is an important concept to grasp in order to truly understand how the word ethnos is used in Scripture. When a group of people are described, and they consist of one nationality, the term laos is appropriate, which is properly a people of the same stock and language. That is a laos in Greek. Examples of this are most frequent where Paul of Tarsus was speaking of Israel as a people throughout his epistle to the Hebrews, where he used that term laos, referring to the people of Israel very frequently in Hebrews. But he also used it in his other epistles when he was referring explicitly to the children of Israel as a people. The plural form of laos appears in the gospel only in Luke chapter 2 verse 31 and then in Acts chapter 4 verse 27. But in Acts 4.27, even though the form of the word laos is plural, the context is still of Israel, so it's not speaking of anybody else, but the people of one nation. And perhaps we will discuss that passage further when we discuss the mistranslated passages in Acts, but the plural form of laos appears again in a citation from the Septuagint, which appears in Romans chapter 15, and three times in the Revelation. So the plural form is found several times in Scripture. These passages led Joseph Thayer in his Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament to deduce that, and I'm quoting Thayer, the plural seems to be used of the tribes of the people. In other words, even though the plural form of laos is found in the Scripture, it's being used of the various tribes of a single people, as the children of Israel had already been distinguished by tribes. In that same manner, Liddell and Scott, in their intermediate Greek-English lexicon, have for their primary definition of the word laos, or people, that it means the people, both in singular or plural. So, we must understand that if not even the plural form of laos was used to describe, diff to describe groups containing diverse races of people, then what term was used for that purpose? That's our reason for this discussion. And this is important, and it also illustrates why the context of references to the nations must be examined wherever the phrase appears, which we will further illustrate 
later on when we discuss Acts chapter 13, verse 46. The word ethnos is properly a number of people who are accustomed to live together. That's its original meaning in Homeric Greek. A number of people accustomed to live together, a company or a body of men. And then after Homer, according to Liddell and Scott, after Homer, it meant a nation or people or sometimes a special class of men like a caste or a tribe. And it is in that last sense, a special class of men, that we may read the word in some instances in Scripture. Where Christ said here in Luke chapter 18 that he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles to be mocked and abused, it is evident that subsequently he was mocked and abused in the same manner by both Judeans and by Romans. That is fully evident comparing Matthew 26:67 and Mark 14:65 where Judeans had done these things to him with Matthew 27:30 and Mark 15:19 where Romans had done these same things to him. So in this context, ethnos in the plural in Luke chapter 18 must have referred to both Judeans and Romans. And if we see that Judeans are also called by the term ethnos, then it cannot mean what denominational Christians think it means, which is non-Jew. If Judeans or Israelites are identified with the term ethnos, then both Judeans and Israelites are also Gentiles. So when you actually examine the Greek, the denominational Christian interpretation of Greek words quite often falls apart. It, it's seen that, that their definition of Gentile as non-Jew, when Gentile comes from the word ethnos, or it's translated from the word ethnos, and that's not even a valid translation, because it should always be nations or nation, that Gentile cannot mean non-Jew when you look at the original Greek terms. It can't. It must mean something else, and it does, because gentilis actually means someone who is of the same tribe or race as you are. That's the original meaning of gentilis, and that was corrupted by church doctrine, but that's a digression. Where Christ said here in Luke chapter 18 that he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and we actually look at who he was delivered unto, who did these things to him that he described, then he's describing, using ethnos in the plural, he's describing both Judeans and Romans. So in this context, ethnos in the plural referred to both Judeans and Romans. And what is important to note here is that while ethnos literally means nation, in the plural, it was also used to describe groups of people of more than one nation.
which was common in Judea at the time of Christ, as well as in diverse other places where there were Israelites, Edomites, Syrians, Samaritans, Greeks, and Romans, all living in the same places. So it is in that manner, in that same manner, that Christ is recorded as having used the plural form of ethnos to describe those who would mock them, who would mock him and abuse him here in Luke chapter 18. And that's important because when we move on to the book of Acts, we'll discuss this same word for nation and, and also the word for race that we saw in the parable of the wicked steward in several passages from the book of Acts. I don't know if you have anything to add. Yeah, Paul seems to get a lot of hate for this, right? Like he's, um, because he seems to be going to synagogues constantly. And, and you know, as you did a whole, um, you know, series on, on Paul Bashers, but there's a completely misconception here that he, he would just go to the elders, which you would do, you, you know, the, the, the people who are elected, go to them first. And if they don't accept Christianity, well, then you go to the people. So it's, it's completely logical, right? You wouldn't try and go through the back door and, and they'd suddenly find you spreading, uh, you know, uh, Christianity. You'd first, out of respect, go to them. Right. When, when Paul was commanded to take the gospel to the so-called Gentiles, Paul understood that he was going to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. To address a pagan, you have to have some common ground. And, and Paul actually found that common ground when he addressed the pagans of Athens. But even then, he had great difficulty because the Athenians did not believe their own myths. Okay? It, if you go back and read the, um, the Homeric poetry, the epic poets, and, and the tragic poets from the 6th and 7th centuries BC, the, the, I'm sorry, the 5th and 6th centuries BC, the Athenians who wrote those tragic poets, they believed in the possibility of resurrection. It's actually a subject of the play Alcestis which I think was written by Euripides. It may have been a Aeschylus. I sometimes get them confused. But Alcestis was resurrected from the dead by their god idol, Heracles. Heracles descended into Hades and brought Alcestis back from the dead as a reward for her bravery. So... If and, and Homer talks about um, apparitions of people from the dead and Odysseus visiting Hades and speaking with the dead and the possibility of resurre resurrection. And, and a lot of interpreters have also interpreted Odysseus's being able to go to Hades and commune with the dead and then come back to the... Um, the, the physical world, they interpret that as resurrection, which is a valid interpretation. So, if the Athenian writers in the classical period accepted the possibility of resurrection from the dead, and then Paul speaks to, to the Athenian pagans about resurrection, 
Well, they don't believe their own myths, so they don't believe Paul, and there's no common ground for Paul to talk to these pagans directly because they didn't even believe their own their own myths. <laughs> so, Paul found, and, and this is quite natural, he found that in the synagogues spread across the, the Greek world, that there were a lot of Greeks attending those synagogues, and there were. Wherever Paul went, he found a mix of Judeans and Greeks. So he used that as a starting point to spread Christianity to those nations because he knew he would have an audience of both Judeans and Greeks that he had a common ground with, a common basis to explain Christianity to them. So he, he wasn't doing that to um, pursue the Jews. He, he was doing that because both Judeans and Greeks, for the most part, were descended from the ancient Israelites. And they are the people he wanted to reach. Whether the synagogue rulers were Edomites or Israelites, because they were mixed, it didn't matter. If they rejected him, he went to the people. And, and that's the, the basis of my argument here today, that where it says he, that, that because the synagogue rulers had rejected the gospel, that he would go to the nations and the Judeo-Christian churches interpret that as Paul's inventing a new religion and making Christianity for everybody instead of just Jews is ridiculous. That's ridiculously childish. And I hope to make that clear here this evening. Yeah, he would have to start somewhere, right? And as you said, that was the best place to go to, to the uh, re religious people and show them Christianity and the truth and how all the myths originate kind of from that. Well, absolutely, because those people were already hearing the laws of Moses in those synagogues. That's the purpose of the synagogues was to read and, and explain and study the law. So, I'm sorry, my coffee cup hits my microphone. This leads us to move on to the book of Acts. And, and we're going to start, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but we're, we're going to start with Acts chapter 2. But because there's a, a recognition of race in, in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 5 that I think is important to understand first. Once you understand all these all of these um, passages and and read them and and understand the true meanings of these terms, your entire worldview becomes a Christian identity worldview. It's easier to 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 understand the history that lays in the background of all this, and and why the apostles were going what to Europe to the nations of Europe while these Judeans were rejecting Christ, because the Judeans, as we've explained many times, were mostly Edomites, and, and it's the people of Europe and, and the Israelites in Judea who believed Christ who were the true children of Israel. And these people who rejected Christ were not 
children of Israel at all. They were mixed race Edomites, even if they were mixed with Judah. In Acts chapter 2, from verses 37 through 40, and I'm going to read the King James Version. Now, when they heard this, this is Peter addressing people at the first Christian Pentecost. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter had announced to them their, that their responsibility in, in the killing of Christ, because all of the men of Judea who were present at that Passover seven weeks before this were in part responsible for that. They bore a national responsibility for that. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off. Now he's not speaking about other races. He's speaking about other Israelites. And to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. If And, and, and this translation, it, to understand it the way Judeo-Christians today understand that word generation, it is absolutely ridiculous. If a generation is all of the people living at the same time, how does a man save himself from his own generation? How can he escape from the time in which he lives? How could that be? But once again, the word translated as generation is genea here, and genea means race. We have already discussed Luke chapter 11 in the parable of the wicked steward, where the word genea must be translated as race, where it was used to, or, or in Luke chapter 11, I'm sorry, the verses I'm referring to, verses 45 through 52, that that's Christ telling his opponents that all the blood of all the prophets from Abel down to Zacharias would come upon their race. And, and there, the word Ganea must be translated as race because it was used to refer to people and events from times both near and remote to, to people, sons and fathers, from times that were both near and remote. So it must be translated as race. If I speak about you and your great-great-great-grandfather, and I use that word genea, I can't mean a generation, because you did not live at the same time as your great-great-great-great-grandfather. It's that simple. So the word must be translated as race, or else it makes no sense whatsoever. And that is also the case here in Acts chapter 2, as a man cannot save himself from the time in which he lives, and neither should a period of time be a threat from which a man should have to save himself. There might be actors in that period of time from which he has to save himself. That would be a race. 
that wouldn't be the time. That would be the actual race of, of the actors. So as we have already described at length in, in this series, Judea was a mixed race society of Israelites and Edomites. And it was the Edomites who had been in control of the government and the temple since the days of the first Herod, the Edomite who was made king by the Romans. Many of the people of Judea, being Edomites themselves or under the influence of the Edomite government, had rejected Christ. And as it was written in the books of the prophets, and as Christ had also warned, destruction was going to come upon them. That's very clear in Daniel chapter 9. Peter must have been familiar with that. The Christians of the time must have been familiar with that. And Christ had also warned them when they pointed out to him the beauty of the temple. He warned them that it was the day was coming when it was all going to be destroyed. So Peter was warning his fellow Israelites to turn to Christ and thereby to abandon Judaism, by which they would save themselves from the destruction which was sure to come upon the Judeans, according to Christ and the prophets. Therefore, we read, and, and I'll read the Christogenian New Testament translation of Acts chapter 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he affirmed and exhorted them, saying, You must be saved from this crooked race, not this untoward generation. So we contend with the translation of a similar word as it is found in Acts chapter 4 where the high priests were persecuting the apostles of Christ. And we read again, and, and this is from the Christogenian New Testament, and there was on the next day <clears throat> a gathering of them, the leaders and the elders and the scribes in Jerusalem, and Hannes, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and Johannes and Alexandros, and as many as were of the race of the high priest, and standing them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name have you done this? They were, they were actually mad at Peter and John for having healed a crippled man, I believe it was. I don't know if you have any comments. So, so just like the Jews today, they were um, getting worried about so-called white supremacy, right? Where Peter's pointing out a crooked race there. Yes, he's absolutely he points out a crooked race in Acts chapter two, and and here in Acts chapter four we see this reference to a a, um, a genos which is called a kindred. It could mean a kindred, but here in Acts chapter four it's going to be set opposite of another word later in the same chapter. And, and we will get into that. And for that reason, it shouldn't be translated as kindred. It should be translated as race, as I will, I will hope to explain. So here at the end of verse 6 of Acts chapter 4, the King James Version has kindred of the high priest. Yet the word for kindred is genos. And genos is a word which is cognate with genea and which is virtually identical in meaning, Liddell and Scott define genos as a race, stock, or kin, and secondly, as a clan, house, or family. So while it may be interpreted as kindred by itself, 
The context is determined further on in verse 23, where we see an opposing phrase that relates to the apostles, and it says, and being released, they went to their own countrymen, as I translate it in the Christian New Testament, and reported as much as the high priests and the elders said to them. So while get while the phrase tus idios, and, and that's the plural form with the definite article of the of, of the word idios, tus idios is in their it is their own company in the King James Version. But in his Greek English lexicon, and, and this is the word, the same word that we discussed in relation to John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, a few weeks ago, a few presentations ago, when we discussed the mistranslations in the Gospel of John. In his Greek English lexicon, Joseph Thayer says that for the nominative plural, hoi idioi, now tus idios is the accusative plural, and there's really no difference because the only difference is that in Acts 4.23, the phrase is the object of a verb. So it has to be written in the accusative case, right? So, for the nominative plural, hoi idioi, it means one's own people, one's fellow countrymen or associates, <clears throat> one's household persons belonging to the house, family, or company. And the ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek-English lexicon agrees, having the same phrase under idios, that it means a member of one's family or relatives. In the context here, it must be asserted that the word is opposed to the phrase at Acts chapter 4, verse 6, which reads, and as many as were of the race of the high priest, knowing from sources such as Strabo and Josephus, as well as Paul of Tarsus, that at least many of the leaders and high priests of the time were Edomites, but the people of Christ were true Israelites. Luke must have purposely meant to make this particular distinction, thereby choosing the words, Tus idios, to refer to the people of the apostles, in contrast to using the word genos, or race, to describe those on the side of the high priests. This distinction is lost where the passages are translated in the King James Version. Yet Acts chapter 4 shows that the apostles were not of the same race as the high priests, as the denominational Christian churches claim. If they were, <clears throat> then the high priests would have been the countrymen of the apostles. And they weren't. The apostles went to their own countrymen. If all of these people were Jews, as the denominational Christian churches claim, then we would not see such phrases as these employed at all, which are actually contrasting one group of Judeans to another group of Judeans.
And it's just like today, isn't it, where um, the, the Jews rule over us now and they're trying to suppress all this and, and keep making laws. And, and eventually they did start um, killing apostles or disciples, right? And they were dispersed. Absolutely. that They started killing them just a short time later. Yes. <laughs> well, when they were, and, and it says that they were dispersed. Yes, I believe that's Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8. After the stoning of Stephen. Another and that should be a lesson for today, right? That there's no negotiating. They won't, they'll just kill us. That They will never settle for, for um, the truth. Absolutely not. As long as we stand in the truth, we should expect to be persecuted. And, and this, this, this recent election in the United States might actually show that that trend is certain. That Christians, that people who are truly Christians who truly stand up for the truth in Scripture and the commandments of Christ will be persecuted, <clears throat> I'm sure. Another passage in Acts, in chapter 7, clearly shows that the word genos describes a race, where the modern Stephen is describing the ancient captivity in Egypt and the King James Version, where it is speaking of Pharaoh says the same dealt subtly with our kindred and evil entreated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. Yet the word for kindred there is genos. And in that context, <clears throat> it is more appropriately race that the Pharaoh dealt subtly with our race. And that's how kindred should be understood in the wider sense. Your kindred is your race, especially in Egypt, comparing the Hebrews to those of another nation and not comparing a portion or a family from your nation to the rest of the nation and calling that family a genos or a genea, as the Greeks often did. So in Acts chapter 4, where their own race, or genos, is contrasted to the tus idios, or, or the hoi idioi of the apostles, meaning their own countrymen, when these two words are used opposite each other, they have to be translated as countrymen and race, and, and not kindred and company. That's weakening the interpretation of the terms. That's purposely weakening it. Before we get to that passage in Acts chapter 13, we have to discuss one other passage, I believe, and, and that's found in Acts chapter 9. I should say at least one other passage, because I don't remember all the passages I selected for this presentation when I typed this out yesterday. I'm sorry. <clears throat> what we have to discuss this passage in Acts chapter 9, which speaks of the nations and kings of Israel. And, and I understand that this is tedious, perhaps, but it's necessary if you're really going to understand the, the mission of Paul and how his words are consistent with that mission later on in the book of Acts and in his epistles. In Acts chapter 9, we have the conversation of Paul of Tarsus, I'm sorry, the conversion 
of Paul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Then, immediately after he, he um, had been encountered by Christ, having suffered damage to his eyes, Christ had sent to Paul a Christian man in Damascus named Ananias. Christ appeared to Ananias in a vision and sent him to Paul, but Ananias was reluctant as he knew that Paul had been persecuting Christians. Christ sent him anyway, as we read in Acts chapter 9 in verse 15, verses 15 and 16 actually, but the Lord said unto him, go thy way, speaking to Ananias, and then speaking in reference of Paul, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before, and this is the King James Version, before the Gentiles and kings, before the Gentiles, comma, and kings, comma, and the children of Israel. That's the King James Version. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So here we have the mission of Paul of Tarsus summarized in Acts chapter 9. But the translation of the King James Version is insufficient as it leaves the reader with the impression that the nations and kings are Gentiles and that they are parties distinct from the children of Israel. But that is not what the text is actually saying. In the Christogenian New Testament, Acts 9.15 reads, But the prince said to him, Go, for he is a vessel chosen by me, who is to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. And that's a huge difference in meaning. The nations and kings are both of the sons of Israel. <clears throat> The phrase in Greek is ton ethnon, and that is of the nations. And then te kahi. And te kahi. Te is a conjunction, and it could mean and in some contexts. And kahi is a conjunction, and it could mean and in some contexts. <clears throat> kahi is more commonly and as a conjunction, than te is, <clears throat> te or te. So, te kahi, why would Paul put, or Luke, I'm sorry, Luke is writing this, why would Luke put two conjunctions in a row if they didn't mean something special? And then, basilion huion, that is, basilion is of the kings, and Quion is of the sons. And those two words are consecutive. And then another conjunction, te, not kahi, but te. And then Israel, spelled in Greek letters. So, ton ethnon, te kahi, basilion huion, te, Israel. And I translate that both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. Now, the NA27, the Nestle Eland Novum Testamentum Grece, follows the codexes Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus and the majority text 
and it wants that first definite article, tone. It's actually the only definite article here. It wants that definite article, tone, or the, the nations, right? Well, the codexes, Vaticanus and Ephraimi Siri, have that article. And those are the codexes I've followed for various reasons. So with the article, the phrase is a form of a hendiatrician. That's also called a hendiatris. And that's a grammatical term meaning one by means of three. Hen is one and dia is through and tris is three. One through three. And a hendiatris is a longer form of something more common called a hendiatis. Hendiatis is one by means of two. Where the items that are joined by the conjunctions following that definite article coalesce or represent the same entity. And, and there's a book and a PDF copy is available at Christagenia. And, and I will try to remember to link it here in the notes. There's a book called Greek Enchiridion by William MacDonald that explains the construction of the Hendiatis and, and the Hendiatris on page 117. So it, it's complicated and it's tedious, but the grammatical construction indicates that the nouns which follow separated by a conjunction, both refer to the same entity. And that's a feature of Greek grammar. But even without that, even without that definite article, as it's missing in some of the codices, and even without the concept of the hendiatrician, the grammar reveals that there is an intrinsic connection between the nouns here. Notice, as I pointed out, that there are two consecutive conjunctions between the words for nations and kings, te kahi. And while the Greek particle te may be written simply as and, followed by kahi, it is both and, and, and that's both with an ellipsis and then an and in the lexicons. The lexicons recognize this as a special construction of these conjunctions. And that's why two conjunctions were used. Te followed by kahi. It, if, I wrote, um, it, if I wrote desk, te, kahi, chair, I mean in English both the desk and the chair. Not just one or the other, or, or, or not just a desk and a chair. I'm, I'm implying a connection between the desk and the chair. And that te kahi is both and, implying that both of them belong to some particular group. So, followed by kahi, te kahi is both and which the lexicons of Liddell and Scott and Thayer explain at their respective entries for that 
conjunction te. It's Strong's number 5037. But you won't get the full story or the full definition in Strong's Concordance. Thayer gives examples for te kahi, and he says that it could mean not only, but also, or as well as, as well, this as well as that, right? Or both and, as we have translated it here. That final te is not represented in the Christogenian New Testament translation. And it certainly shouldn't be and because of the sons of Israel is not an addition, but it is the same entity as the nations and kings. All three items being of one and the same entity. That's what the grammar insists. The repetition of the te, the final te that is not represented in the Christogenian New Testament translation, that repetition of the te conjunction only strengthens the connection of Israel to the nations and kings, especially as it is positioned between the words for sons and Israel. If we examine the Greek, that final conjunction where the King James Version has and the sons of Israel and, and leads us to believe that the sons of Israel are separate from the nations and kings. That final conjunction is not between the word for kings and the word for sons. That final conjunction lays in the Greek, in all the manuscripts, it lays between the word for sons and the word for Israel. So it's not separating kings and sons, that final conjunction. And the King James translation is, and, and all the other translations of, of this verse, which try to separate sons of Israel or children of Israel from nations and kings, they are all dishonest, every single one of them, because the conjunction does not separate kings and sons and the phrase naturally reads and of the kings of the sons and of the kings of the sons and then there's a conjunction between sons and israel so the text is showing us that nations and kings and sons of israel are all intrinsically connected fair Joseph Thayer, in his lexicon entry at Te, number 5037, states that Te differs from Kahi, where Kahi is conjunctive. Kahi is a plain conjunction, right? This and that. But Te is adjunctive and is a difference. He says that Kahi introduces <clears throat> something new under the same aspect, yet as an external addition, whereas te marks it as having an inner connection with what precedes. Therefore, the Greek of this phrase again, and, and the later half of the phrase, is basilion of the kings, huion of the sons, te Israel. So, Israel has an inner connection with the phrase of the kings of the sons. 
and they all belong to the same entity. It shows again how Greek is more um, complicated and more uh, more advanced in certain ways, right? <laughs> Back again, well, we just don't have stuff like that in English. But when you t when you make a translation, you can't just simply translate it and ignore the 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 sense of the different senses of te and kahi and translate them all with and. You can't do that. That's dishonest. You yeah. can't yeah. ignore the fact that there is no conjunction between kings and sons in the text, that those kings are of the sons of Israel, just as Abraham would pro was promised, kings will come out of thy loins, and thy seed will be many nations. Where are they? Well, the apostles went to them, dummy, and, and I'm not calling you a dummy, I'm making an example. Where are they? Well, they're the people of Paul's commission here in Acts 9.15. And understanding this phrase, which actually does say exactly how it's translated in the Christogenian New Testament, not in these other versions, which ignore these aspects of Greek grammar. They ignore it. They ignore that te is adjunctive. Thayer knew it. He, he said that, not me. He wrote that over a hundred years ago. That this Israel must have an inner connection with what precedes. And that would be nations and kings and sons because that te appears twice. It appears in between nations and then of the kings of the sons and then it appears again between sons and Israel. So all these yeah, here have you an can, intrinsic connection. You can clearly see that there was an agenda, right? It, it would, like if I said, um, take the uh, cows, pigs, and chickens over to that farm, and, and I ordered it to um, take the pigs and chickens and only the, um, you know, the, the other. Sorry, I forgot I said the chickens to the farm. I'm deliberately ordering it so that only one would be taken over. That's why I was trying to say that there's an agenda. And this is really important because this is the Paul's commission. What his whole purpose is, if you understand that he was sent to the nations, kings and sons of Israel, and he heads over to Europe, he writes, he sets up churches, he writes all his epistles only to those people. Well, then you clearly see what Paul's ministry was for and who are the Israelites, the European people that he went to, right? Absolutely. And, and when you get to Romans chapter 4, what we have a reference to Abraham, our forefather in all the ancient manuscripts, not simply Abraham, our spiritual father, as denominational Christians interpret the word father. It says Abraham, our forefather. And he's talking about himself and he's talking about Romans who had the truth of God and turned it into a lie in Romans chapter 1. <coughs> and then he goes on to explain that the inheritance in Christ is according to the promise, so shall thy seed be. And, and then he gets to 1 Corinthians and, and writes 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and, and he says, all of our fathers, and he's speaking to Dorian Greeks, all of our fathers were under the cloud and in the sea. 
so so who did he bring the gospel to but descendants of Israel and and he goes to the Galatians and he tells the Galatians expressly that Christ came to redeem those who were under the law so if you're not under the law you're not redeemed and the law was only given to the children of Israel only the children of Israel were under the law so the Galatians must have also been under the law because Paul is telling them that they're redeemed so we must examine ancient history and find out how the Romans, the Corinthians, and the Galatians are descendants of Israel. And that's who Paul went to in every one of his epistles. If I were to render that final tear in the Greek, which lies between the, the it, it lays, I should say, between the words for sons and Israel, I would have to translate the passage to say both the nations of the sons of Israel and the kings of the sons of Israel, or both the nations and kings, both of the sons of Israel. So even if it is not exactly literal, the meaning is both the nations of the sons of Israel and the kings of the sons of Israel. And that is in fulfillment with the purpose of the gospel as it was described by Luke in chapters 1 and 2, which we discussed last week, that it was to fulfill the promises made to the fathers. And that's to reconcile those many nations descended from Abraham's loins to God in Christ. That's the purpose of the gospel. That's the purpose of the gospel as it's announced in Isaiah and in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 34, Ezekiel chapter 37, and, and the, the entire last 25 chapters of Isaiah. Paul cited Isaiah in chapter 52 in his epistle to the Romans. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that bringeth good tidings, the word gospel means good tidings or good news. That brings good tidings of good, that's the word gospel, that publishes salvation, the announcement of redemption to the children of Israel, that says unto Zion, thy God reigns, which is the, the entire purpose of the Christ, to be the king over the children of Israel. And that's a direct prophecy in Isaiah chapter 52 of the purpose of the gospel. And that's exactly what we see Paul doing and his commission here in Acts here in Acts 9.15. The Bible, once we accept what the actual Greek grammar and the meanings of Greek words tell us, the Bible is a single consistent book from one end to the other. As the book of Acts progresses, the truth of this interpretation is ascertained. First, where Paul describes the agreement which he and Barnabas had with the other apostles. And we read, this isn't in Acts, but it, it's recorded in Galatians chapter 2. And this is from the King James Version in Galatians 2.9. And James, when James, Cephas, now Cephas is the Hebrew word for stone, and Paul 
referred to Peter, which is from Petrus, the Hebrew, the Greek word for stone, right? Thou shalt be called Petrus. Simon Peter was given that nickname Petrus by Christ, after which he was called, he was known as Peter in English, but Petros in Greek. Well, Cephas is the Hebrew equivalent of that, and I believe Paul used that of Peter affectionately, the Hebrew word for stone, right, Cephas. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me Barnabas, me and Barnabas, the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and, and that's that word ethos, and they under the circumcision. And of course, heathen there in the King James Version is the plural of ethnos, actually, and it means nations, the nations to which Paul was told he would go in Acts chapter 9, the nations of the sons of Israel. That was his commission. So this agreement he had with the apostles in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, which is much later than this conversion of Paul in Acts chapter 9, this agreement he had was based on the commission he was given by Christ that he was to go to the nations. The other apostles were not given that commission. So they stayed with the circumcision. If Paul was commissioned to go to the nations of Israel, as it says here in Acts chapter 9, and they were not circumcised, then we see that the nations to which Paul was sent were the nations of the captivities of Israel, and the tribes of Israelites who were in the Assyrian captivity had already long ago migrated north and west into Europe, so that is where Paul and Barnabas had went, beginning in Acts chapter 13, with their first missions abroad. So even later, while addressing the Judeans in Acts chapter 22, after he had been arrested in Jerusalem, Paul once again recounted the commission which Christ had given to him, and he told the Judeans in part, and he said unto me, depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles, which is that word ethnos again in the plural, which means nations. So Paul was told by Christ to go to far off nations, and the nations of Europe are the nations of Israel, here in Acts 9.15, to which he was sent. If Paul, if all of Israel at this time were circumcised, if the gospel was originally only for Jews, why would Paul be sent to the sons of Israel if he was not supposed to go to the circumcision? If Paul was only going to the uncircumcised, how could he be going to the sons of Israel if they were all circumcised, if they were all Jews? The conflicts in the King James and the denominational Christian understanding of these verses are numerous. The conflicts in our understanding of these verses are zero. There are none. There are no conflicts. The Bible is consistent from one end to the other. And nothing's changed. It's the same today. They're still trying to stop white Christianity or, or Christianity spreading to white 
Absolutely. Or they're trying to pervert it. It's exactly the same as 2,000 years ago. That's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 22, where Paul had told the Judeans when he was arrested in his address to them, depart, that Christ said to him, depart, for I will send the far hands unto the nations. Paul was told by Christ to go to those far off nations. And then Luke recorded the reaction of the Jews in Jerusalem. And we could call them Jews here because these are the people that rejected Christ. And even though reject, they rejected Christ, they still wanted to stop Paul from spreading the gospel. So they gave him audience, Luke writes, unto this word, meaning right up to this point, they listened to him. And then when they heard this, they lifted up their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. So even though they themselves rejected Christ, they didn't want Paul to teach the nations about Christ. Why? Why did they so staunchly want to prevent him from doing that? So the only thing Paul said for which the Jews wanted to kill him was that he was commissioned to take the gospel to the 12 tribes of Israel scattered abroad. That's exactly how Luke portrays it. Yeah, yeah, it must be their intrinsic intrinsic nature just hates Christianity, right? That Absolutely. good and righteousness and a moral society. They, they don't like it. To this day, they hate it. To this day, they hate us. And, and this is not a leap in our interpretation. Not only do we know from Acts chapter 9 that Paul was taking the gospel to the scattered nations and kings of Israel, but also from Acts chapter 26, where he was still under arrest and was being sent to Rome. And after having been questioned by the Edomite king Herod, Herod Agrippa II, Paul said, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our 12 tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. And then he says, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. So right there comparing what Paul said to the Jews in Acts chapter 22, for which they wanted to kill him, we see that the far-off nations to which he was sent were indeed the nations of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Paul's epistles proved that same thing over and over again. Now, this is consistent with all of the prophets this interpretation is consistent with all of the prophets. It's consistent with all of the promises to the fathers. It's consistent with Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, that Christ would man make the nations manifest and, and that Christ had come to fulfill those same promises to the fathers. And this is consistent with all of Paul's epistles. So the Bible is one consistent narrative from front to back. And God never changed his mind. But the denominational churches again sow confusion, where they translate the word as Gentiles in Acts chapter 13. We had just mentioned this passage 
several times earlier in relation to our discussion of the word laos or people. In the King James Version, Acts chapter 13, verse 46 reads, Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, in response to those synagogue leaders in a particular place who rejected him in Pisidian Antioch, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, to the leaders of the synagogue. But seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. That's the King James Version. The denominational Christians <clears throat> claim that this is where Paul gave up on the Jews. And that from this, from this point, he only went to Gentiles. As if Paul would or even could abandon the original commission given him by Christ to go to the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. The denominational Christians are lying because that is certainly not true. This event in Acts chapter 13 happened in Pisidian Antioch. And if Paul gave up on the Jews and said that from this time he would go only to Gentiles, why is it <clears throat> that he is found in a synagogue in Iconium speaking to Judeans in the very next chapter in Acts chapter 14 verse 1? Why would he go back to a synagogue if he was only going to go to Gentiles? Why is it deposed in a synagogue again in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, verse 1, and in Berea in Acts chapter 17, verse 10? And he began in a synagogue in Athens in Acts chapter 17, verse 17. And he was in a synagogue in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. He was in a synagogue in Ephesus for three months, Acts chapter 19, verse 8. So the denominational interpretation of this passage in Acts chapter 13, verse 46 is clearly wrong. And therefore the words must have some other meaning by which they could be translated. Because Luke is not a liar. Not at all. In the Christogenian New Testament, Acts chapter 13, verse 46 reads, Then Paul and Barnabas, speaking openly, said, To you, to the leaders, it was necessary to speak the word of Yahweh first. Since you have rejected him and judge yourselves not worthy of eternal life, behold, we turn to the people. The scope is local. It must be local because Paul and Barnabas were in many synagogues later. So the scope is local, and the local rulers of this synagogue rejected Paul and Barnabas. And Paul told them that he would bypass them and speak directly to the people. And the proof of our interpretation is in the fact that Paul went to so many other synagogues soon thereafter, that the Judeo-Christian interpretation of this passage must be wrong. <clears throat> the King James Version has Gentiles here in Acts chapter 13, verse 46, where we have people. And the phrase is 
pa ethne. That's the accusative plural of ethnos. And with the article, we have people, but the word very often and most literally means nation. There are several other places in the New Testament where the context in which it is used dictates that ethnos be rendered people and not nation or even heathen. And among them, what, where the word should be rendered people is Mark chapter 11, verse 17, Acts chapter 8, verse 9, 18, verse 6, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. The King James Version has people for ethnos at Acts chapter 8, verse 9. And for goyim, or goy, the, the, the Hebrew word for nation, at Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, which is quoted at Mark eleven seventeen. But the King James in Isaiah 56, 7 has, mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people in Isaiah. But where Mark quotes it in Mark 11, verse 17, the King James Version has, my house shall be called of all nations, the house of prayer. In the Septuagint, <clears throat> Brenton has people for ethnos in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 2. I haven't checked anywhere else in the Septuagint still to this day, even though I first wrote this many years ago. But in any event, we see that in some contexts, people is a valid interpretation of the Greek word ethnos, as you could even check in the King James Version at Acts chapter 8, verse 9. But we have already asserted here this evening the fact that the word laos, <clears throat> which literally means people, was not used to describe people of various races or nations together in the same context. The word laos only means people when all the people the word describes are of one nation or tribe. So, in those cases where people of various nations or races are together in the same context, which is also the case here in Acts 13.46, the plural form of ethnos, which with the definite article is ta ethne, was used instead. In the context of Acts 13.46 here, Paul had addressed the assembly hall leaders and he rejected them, those who had opposed him in this one local synagogue. And he turned to the people themselves who made up the assembly. And because the people themselves who made up the assembly consisted of both Judeans and Greeks, and because this is Pisidian Antioch, so there may also have been some Celts and some Romans and maybe even some Phrygians. All of them were descended from Adamites and most of them were descended from the ancient Israelites. Because of that, and because a mixed group, a people of mixed races and nations cannot properly be termed a laos, Paul used the word ethnos or the plural form 
ethne of different nations of people in a particular place or context. They would not have been termed a laos in Greek because a laos, which is the general word for a people in Greek, a people as a collective unit, where they are all of the same nation or ethnic background. They are a laos, but here they are a group of disparate or different or multiple nations mixed together in this assembly. So the term ta-ethne, the different nations of people in a particular place or context, the term ta-ethne is used in that setting, not laos or hoi laoi, the peoples. That use of the word ethnos is very evident in many contexts in scripture. Once you spot it, you can't help but understand it, in, in my opinion. It's an absolute fallacy committed by many theologians that here in Acts chapter 13, Paul invents a new religion, rejecting the Judeans and bringing Christianity instead to some Gentiles. But that is the usual interpretation of this passage, Acts 13, 46. Many Bible editions, if you look at the cross-references in your Bible, many Bible editions cross-reference this passage in Acts 13, 46 to Matthew 21, 43. And in Matthew 21, 43, Christ says to the Pharisees that the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. So they cross-reference that to Acts 13, 46, where Paul tells the synagogue leaders that he's going to go to the nations, or ta-ethne, which in that context simply means to the people of the Judeans and Greeks in the synagogue assembly, where Christ said, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof, that passage should be cross-referenced to Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, where it says that the saints of the Most High shall inherit the kingdom and it will never be taken away. That should be cross-referenced to Micah chapter 4, Verses 7 and 8, and, and let, let me pull that up, and, and I will actually read that. Micah 4, verse 7, and I will make her that halted, meaning the captivity of Israel. I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast off afar, a strong nation. That means that the Israelites who in the captivity stayed close to the ancient land of Israel became a remnant. But those that were far away, those that traveled far away, became a strong nation. And we could see in history how that was fulfilled. And Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. And then it says in Micah chapter 4, verse 8, And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. That's where Matthew chapter 21, verse 43 should be cross-referenced, 
where, it's, where Christ said the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. In Micah 4, 7, we see that the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem, meaning the kingdom of God shall be taken from Jerusalem and given to a people who descended from those same ancient Israelites. That's where Matthew 21:43 should be cross-referenced. But instead, the Judeo-Christians uphold all their lies concerning Gentiles and Jews by cross-referencing Matthew 21:43 to Acts 13:46, where it does not belong, because Paul goes to many other synagogues when he leaves here. And here he is only speaking locally to these synagogue leaders that he's going to go to the people because those people were of diverse nations. He didn't call them aleos. He called them ta-ethne, the nations, on a local scale. I hope I made that point. I hope I made it clear that that's one use of that word ethnos. Yeah, and um, synagogue that can um, lead people astray, right? Because a, a modern synagogue is essentially a, a den of crooks and criminals, right? I think right. even Martin Luther gave a good quote on, <clears throat> on that one. But, you, you know, where they start all their revolutions and, and they're spread out everywhere and they keep an eye on, on us, the, the so-called goyim. But, but a, a synagogue, if you explained, is just a Greek compound word, right? And it could just be any assembly or gathering of people. It's nothing like what we imagine a synagogue today. So when Paul's going to him, he's just going to local assemblies of Judeans and other people spreading Christianity, right? Yes. But the word synagogue is a Greek phrase. Actually, it's a Greek compound word. It's almost like a phrase. Um, sun, S-U-N, which is S-Y-N in English, don't ask me why, is with or together. And the second part of the word synagoga, synagogue, is the verb ago, which means to lead or can mean to gather or to lead. And gase, which means land. So synagogues, synagogue is a Greek word which means to be led together at a particular place or land. It simply means to be with the assembly or, or the assembly place or assembly land where people are led together for a particular purpose. Synagogue. That's the etymology of the word, and as briefly as I could explain it off the top of my head. That is what it means to be at an assembly. That's all it means. And, and if these people at these synagogues were, were so ardently um, Jews, why did they use a compound Greek word to describe their assemblies that persists to this very day? Why didn't they use a Hebrew word to describe their assemblies? They used the Greek word. I think because of this, they, they saw an opportunity to 
to um, use the word and claim, oh, he was going to, you know, J Jews only, and and they've very sneakily uh, adopted that word for that purpose. Maybe yeah, that, that, there's a more sneakily adopted Greek word though in the New Testament. We see it, um, but we also see it frequently today in Jewish writings. That's the word Sanhedrin. That's not a Hebrew word. That comes from the Greek words soon. There's that word with again, S-U-N or S-Y-N, means with or together in Greek. And hedrion, a hedrion is a bench, and it was used to describe a council. So soon hedrion means with the council. And, and it describes somebody who, who was a leader going to a council to make a decision, a joint decision, to hear something out and, and talk about it. And we see that in the New Testament, right? Nicodemus was on the council. Well, that's the Sanhedrin, but that came from Greek words. That didn't come from a Hebrew word. That's a compound Greek word. So, so, so would, um, how would I say, a, an assembly, even if it wasn't technically run by Judeans, could, could in that context where Paul says he went to the synagogue, could it also just be a local uh, religious gathering place of, of a nation or a town? In, in the context of Scripture, these synagogues were established throughout the Greek world because... Well, for several reasons, right? Because a lot of Judeans were businessmen or, or were diplomats or couriers or, or employees of businesses, and they had to travel from place to place. And when they traveled, they wanted to keep their, their, their religion, their religious practice of gathering every Sabbath day and, they, and, and hearing the law, right, as we see in the New Testament, um, I, I believe it was Christ who said that Moses has those who hear him in, in the synagogues every Sabbath day, right? That, that statement is in the New Testament. So wherever they traveled, if they had to go to Athens or if they had to go to um, diverse places throughout the empire, or if they resettled, which they often did, in diverse places throughout the empire, that they would have their own assembly where they could hear the law and maintain their own customs. So the synagogues also had lodges attached to them, like hotels. And the synagogue leaders were also like hotel keepers who managed these hotels, these little lodges, and a Judean traveling in these cities, these Greco-Roman cities could actually have a place to stay where the law was kept. So there would be no swine and, and implements and things like that were cleaned according to the Hebrew customs so that he would generally know that he could eat and, and drink within the confines of how they kept the laws of Moses. Right, which Christ had, had criticized them for because they became hypocritical about it, but which were still nevertheless valid. 
So they had these places they could go. Now, if they didn't have a synagogue in a particular place, we see visiting, I believe it was Thessalonica, where Paul and Silas had gone down by the river. And that's where they first met Lydia, who was the woman that was a seller of purple, right? And other women that were gathered by the river to pray, where the, the Judeans and, and the ancient Israelites had no um, proper assembly hall where they could hear the law of Moses. They gathered by rivers, typically. So Paul and Silas... I believe it may have been um, not Thessalonica. But when they meet Lydia and the women, they arrive at this particular place. I really can't quite come up with it right now. It's in Acts chapter 16. Uh, no, in Acts chapter 15. That'd be a good place to go, though, Rivers, if you knew uh, Judeans would be praying there, though, like for Paul to go to. Right, exactly. They knew to go, that there was no synagogue in that place, and they knew to go to the river. And, and I'm sorry, I just can't find the passage. I, I will in a minute. I just have to figure out the right word to search for, because the way I spell terms isn't always the way they're spelled in the King James. Okay, it's in Acts chapter 16, and it was from thence to, it was Philippi. I, I, I remembered it was somewhere in Macedonia, right? It was Philippi that they arrived in and there was no synagogue there. So because there was no synagogue, when the Sabbath day came, they knew to go to the river. And going to the river on the Sabbath day, they would know whether or not there were other Judeans or Hebrews in in that place, because they would also be by the river, and that's where they met Lydia, the seller of purple, meaning that she had her own business trading in garments of, of, that were dyed with that murex that was popular on the coast of Palestine, for which the Greeks called it Phoenicia, that purple dye. And, and that was very valuable to have cloth with, with that purple dye, right? So this woman had made her business, this Lydia made her business selling purple, which was cloth dyed with that purple dye, or perhaps even the dye itself. And, and they met her, and, and they knew that they would. That's why they went to the river. They knew that they would meet some fellow Judeans at the river because Philippi had no synagogue. So that that was typical throughout the empire, that wherever Judeans had often traveled, that they would establish a synagogue and, and they would have a place to go and, and keep their own traditions and customs in, in, in contrast to the pagan. Otherwise, they'd have to go to a pagan temple to eat because pagan temples were also inns and brothels and restaurants and places of entertainment. So they would have to go to the pagan temple, well, which is 
one reason why Paul had to give such long discourses on, on that in Romans chapter 14. And, and I think also in 1 Corinthians, maybe chapter 11, I think. I'm not, I'm, I'm not entirely certain, but it's in there. It's in there somewhere. Okay, I think that was a long enough digression. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that was great. And then um, we'll get to Paul's epistles next week, right? Or, or is there, do you have any more of Acts? I would have to look at my notes to see if I have any more of Acts. I, I, I really don't know right now, but we will definitely get to some of the mistranslations in Paul's epistles next week. I have a feeling that's certainly going to take more than one week. But because that that's, I, I mean, there are, as we illustrated, some mistranslations in the Synoptic Gospels and, and some in John that are mistranslations or misunderstandings of passages that once they are they are rectified and we see that they could be translated in a manner which makes them consistent with the words of Christ and, and the prophets, that we, that we see that the translation is absolutely agreeable to our Christian identity faith. As you get here in the book of Acts, those key passages like Acts 9.15 and Acts 13.46 that are mistranslated or misunderstood, when you get to Paul's epistles, because Paul was the apostle to the nations that were not circumcised, the nations of the Assyrian captivity and the nations of scattered Israel, which had all turned to paganism in, a, in the very early past, because Paul was the nations to those people, the most mistranslations and misinterpretations found in the scripture happened to be in the letters of Paul. These, the, the, the most significant dynamic in translation is understanding the narrative and the historical context behind the words of the writer or speaker. And in the 16th century, when Bibles began to be translated into not only English, but German and other European languages, that, that didn't happen freely. I mean, it did happen in the early church, right? Because the early church did not bar people from access to the scriptures. So even in Bede, who was a, an 8th century Roman Catholic apologist, Bede testifies that there were churchmen in England who were translating the scriptures into the common languages in England. So all those translations were lost to time. They're all gone. I don't think we'll ever have any of them whatever they translated, right? They were making translations that early. But by the 11th or 12th century, because sects were developing in diverse places, as people had more access to the scriptures, the Roman Catholic Church became averse to the idea that the common people should have the scriptures in their own languages and even understand the scriptures. And they began to withhold the scriptures from the people. And at the Fifth Lateran Council, 
it was decided by the church, and now we're in the early 16th century, I believe, that the Fifth Lateran Council under the De Medici popes, Leo X, Giovanni de Medici was Pope Leo X, the church decided that no translation or, or addition of scripture should be printed anywhere in Europe without the permission of the bishop. And of course, the church being averse to the people having scriptures, the bishops would never give that permission. So they really did try to withhold the scriptures from the people as late as the 16th century. And even today, I was raised a Catholic. We never opened the Bible in 10 years of Catholic school in, in the 1960s and early 1970s. We never opened the Bible. They had a, a, a Bibles for show in some of the church pews, but we I don't remember opening them. Well, the Catholic Church always suppressed the scripture from the, I think it was the 11th or 12th centuries. And Englishmen, or, or Europeans, I should say, didn't start translating them again until the 16th century. I, I mean, there were a couple of translations in England earlier than that that cost men their lives. Or, or that Englishmen had to run to Switzerland to make the Geneva Bible. That's why it's called the Geneva Bible, because it was made by Englishmen, but they couldn't do it in England. They had to do it in Switzerland. I saw one theory. Um, do, do you think it's related because there was that, that big um, plague just before that, or, you know, a few decades where um, an untold number of Europeans died? And um, some, some people have suggested that made people so curious about the Bible because they wanted to know what, what does the Bible say about this and why did the Catholic Church not stop all these deaths? And, and from there, um, all the translations started coming. Do, do you think it's anything to do with that or do you think it's just that at that time it was gradually getting to that, that people started translating it? No, I think it was gradually getting to that because at the time there were a lot of reformers, not just Martin Luther. There was Jan Hus in, 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 in Bohemia, in Czechoslovakia, right? In, in the Czech Republic today, right? In, in the 14th century, or maybe it was the 13th century, I, rem I, I don't really remember offhand, but it was like 150, 200 years before Luther. So I think it was the 14th century who led a reformation in Bohemia and, and successfully broke from the Roman Catholic Church. And, and that was really the first large-scale reformation. So there were reformers from the time of Huss in, in diverse places in Europe who were advocates of studying the Scripture because they found that many things in Scripture and, and many of the policies of the Catholic Church were antithetical to scripture and, and things in scripture actually condemned some of the things that the Catholic church was doing. Of course, selling Luther's biggest contention with the church, what was the selling of indulgences and, and the selling of tickets out of purgatory 
for your dead mother or your dead grandparents or, or your dead husband or wife that they would actually leech off people by convincing them that if you gave the church enough money, the Pope could spring your deceased parents out of purgatory and that they would go to heaven and they would play on the um, basic ignorance of, of the people and naivety of the people of Europe and and they use that as a cash cow to bleed the people of Europe dry. This idea of purgatory, which is not found anywhere in scripture. And men started to realize that. So you had these reformers within the church that didn't want to split from the church that thought they could change the church. And Martin Luther started out that way. He thought he could change the church. He wrote his 95 theses hoping to change the church and instead the Pope sent sycophants to debate with Luther and, and to use craft to, to try to stop him from persuading the people but eventually the Reformation was successful and once the, the, the Reformation was successful then men were able to start translating the scriptures without having their lives threatened. Because Tyndale, I, I think it was Tyndale that had first translated the scriptures into um, the modern, or, or it's not really modern, right? English language was William Tyndale, and he translated the Tyndale Bible from Latin. He didn't really have good Greek manuscripts. He translated his Bible from the, from the Latin Vulgate into English. And I believe that cost him his life, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and another guy in England, was it John Wycliffe? Uh, I mean, they're, they're probably everywhere all over Europe it being be burnt at the stake. It might be Wycliffe I'm thinking about. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. It, it's I get it mixed up. Uh, I apologize, but I do. I think it was Wycliffe that translated that Hebrew, that, that first Latin-based English Bible. And it cost him his life. Yes. <laughs> that was in the 14th century. And then Tyndale came along with, with he was the next translation, I believe, of, of a Bible into English. And the Geneva Bible and, and then the finally the King James Bible. But even the King James Bible was a government Bible. It was an official Church of England government Bible, and a lot of its translations simply support the structure of the Church of England and the policies of the English kings. So the King James Bible was biased when it started. So I don't remember the history perfectly because I rarely discuss it. So <laughs> I should um, perhaps someday do, a, do, do more podcasts on Lutheran life and death. It's a series I started and broke off for the sake of the protocols of Satan and the Jews in medieval Europe, and I never really got back to it. But I made it in Martin Luther's life up to the deed of arms when he was put on trial. He had made 
the first German New Testament translation at that time. And, and that also, there were many dialects of German, and that also helped to unify and homogenize the, the German language, right? Because so many people started following the German of Luther's Bible. Yeah, and the King James did the same for England, right? Or yes. all of the UK. Yes, so they actually, those first English Bibles, even if most of the language of the King James Version is taken directly from the Geneva Bible, perhaps as much as 80% of it is directly from the Geneva Bible. But that they did have a significant impact on the later development of English and German, those first those first um, accepted translations, I should say. Because, of course, Tyndale's and Coverdale's translations were not accepted by the established authorities of their time. I think there was a Bible earlier called the... There was another Bible earlier, not earlier than Coverdale. I, I get them a little confused, I'm sorry, but there was a great Bible or a bishop's Bible in English as well. There were several English Bibles before the King James Version. There was Tyndale, there was Coverdale, there was the Geneva Bible, and there was a Great Bible, or Bishop's Bible, it was called. Wow. I'm sorry, it's been four or five years since I've even looked at that history, so <laughs> <laughs> I've been off on other projects, right? I'm trying to get my New Testament commentary done. I think that's about enough for today, though, and and we'll get back to Paul of Tarsus next week, or or possibly, I I don't know if there are any more mistranslations in Acts that are so significant enough as to include here. I would have to look at my notes between now and then, but I'm sure that we'll spend quite a while on the mistranslations in Paul, because there's a lot of things in Paul that are are just very poorly translated. That once once they are properly translated. We have an entirely different narrative on the entire ministry of Paul and its purposes. But its purposes have already been spelled out in Acts, even in Acts chapter 26, where he says that the hope that for which he's persecuted is the hope of the 12 tribes. And, and I don't think you'll find a modern-day pastor in a denominational church ever do a sermon on Acts chapter 26, verses 6 and 7. I don't think you'll ever see that. Thank you. For well, if he here. did, he would get fired, right? <laughs> yeah, right. He probably would. Thank you, B. Thank you for being here. I'm sorry. I'm tripping over myself. And praise Christ. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of our European race. Thank you. Good night. Or good morning, I should say. For you, it's night. Okay. Thank you.